Well, our psalm today, Psalm 51, has been very well introduced by the worship time. So if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn there. But before I read Psalm 51, a sermon I've entitled, Creating Me a Clean Heart, I want to give you the context of how, why David wrote this psalm. It's one of several what are called penitential psalms in the book of Psalms, perhaps the most well-known, the most beloved of all of these psalms of confession to God. But the context of it's found in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12. I want to tell you that Bible story right now, and then we'll get into Psalm 51. I think the context is critical for us to understand why. David wrote these words. The Bible tells us in 2 Samuel 11 that it was the custom of the kings to go out into battle in the springtime. David dispatched his commander Joab along with all the king's men and all the army of Israel to fight against the Ammonites to destroy them. They were besieging a city called Rabbah. But David stayed in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bedroom and walked out on the rooftop of his palace and looked down and saw a beautiful woman bathing on the roof of her home. David then went to a servant and inquired of that servant to find out who she was. That servant came back to him and said, Her name is Bathsheba. She is the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David summoned for her to come to him. And he went to bed with her. Then after they had sent her back home... Sometime later, she sent a message to David which simply said this, I am pregnant. David then made contact with his commander, Joab, and summoned Joab to send Uriah back to him from battle. And so Uriah came to King David. David asked him how the battle was going. And then David said, go home and wash your feet to Uriah. But Uriah would not return to his home. He stayed outside the entrance of David's palace and even slept there during the night along with David's servants. Now the next day when David found this out, he asked for Uriah to come to him and then he Questioned Uriah, saying to him, uh, asking why he didn't go to his home. And this was Uriah's answer. He said, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in open fields. My master, my Lord's men, the warriors, are living in tents out in the open field. How? How could I go home and eat and drink 
and sleep with my wife. As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. So then David made sure that Uriah would remain with him for dinner that day. And they ate and drank. And, and David made sure that Uriah got drunk. But Uriah did not go home. He slept on his mat outside the gate of the palace along with David's servants. The next morning, David wrote a letter to Joab to be sent back to Joab into battle by the hand of Uriah. And in that letter, David commanded Joab, his commander of the army, to do this. He said, put Uriah at the front of the battle lines where the battle is most fierce, then withdraw the men from around him so that he'll be killed. The time came for battle and they were fighting there around that city of Rabbah. And Joab, just as David had commanded him, put Uriah there at the place where he knew that the enemy defenses were the most powerful. And when some of the men of the city of the Ammonites came out to fight against Israel, there were some of the Israelite army men who died. One of those men who died was Uriah the Hittite. Joab sent a message back to David about the battle and told him that Uriah had died. And when Bathsheba had heard that her husband Uriah had died, she mourned. Over him. But after her time of mourning was over, David summoned that she be brought to his house to become his wife. And she gave birth to a son. But this thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord sent the prophet Nathan to David. Nathan, when he came to King David, told David a story. He said there were two men in the same town, a rich man and a poor man. The rich man had many sheep, many cattle. The poor man only had one little female lamb that he had bought, that he had raised. And that lamb was like a daughter to him. It ate at the table with him and his children. It drank from his cup. He even held it in his arms and it slept with him. A certain traveler came to stay with the rich man. And when the traveler arrived and stayed with the rich man, the rich man, instead of taking from one of his cattle or one of his sheep to provide food for that traveler, he went to that other poor man and took that lamb from him and cooked it for his guest. David burned with anger. And he said to Nathan, that man deserves to die for what he has done. And he should pay back fourfold what he had taken from that poor man because he did such a thing and he had no pity. But Nathan said, you are the man. And Nathan went on to pronounce judgment upon David and his household. Upon which David then said, I have sinned against the Lord. That's the context of Psalm 
51. Look now with me at this message. Create in me a clean heart. Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. And in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit, Within me, cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Create in me a clean heart, O oh God. Inside your worship, God, there is an insert where I have on one side of that half sheet all of Psalm 51, just so you can keep that scripture before you this morning. On the back, there's an outline that I want to quickly work through. You know, you see a story like this in 2 Samuel 11 and 12 about David, and you wonder for at least a moment, I know I wonder quite a bit, how could this king be so beloved in all of Israel? How can this man even be said by the inerrant inspired word of God elsewhere to be a man after God's own heart when this man so willingly, decisively, intentionally did what he did? I believe the answer is found in Psalm 51. Because David knew how, from a real heart, no games, David knew how to confess his sin and to repent, to turn from it. And you might find some of the kings, the good kings of Israel, who don't have quite the resume of sin that David had in his life. But you will find with David a man who knew how to get right with his God. 
How much inspiration has Psalm 51 been for believers for thousands of years? How God can even get into a terrible situation that took place. God never ordains that sin take place. That was all David's doing. The enemy came against him. He was given over to lust and did the terrible thing that he did. Yet David was the anointed king of Israel. If the anointed king of Israel, a man after God's own heart, could fall and then write words like this, then there's hope for every single one of us in this room that we might find mercy in our forgiving, wonderful God. First truth is this, we realize our need for God's mercy when we understand the gravity of our sinfulness. Time is not going to allow me to do a thorough verse-by-verse exposition. So what I put in your insert was just some, I referenced some of the scriptures that speak toward these truths. We're not going to appeal to a merciful God unless we're in need of mercy. That's a fact. We're not going to say, oh God, be merciful to me unless we know that we deserve punishment. So David realized his need for God's mercy because he knew so well how sinful he was. First kind of bullet point underneath that is that our sin is multifaceted deeply rooted David uses three different Hebrew words for sin in these first couple of verses the word transgressions which means you cross a forbidden boundary and in doing so you have in mind that you are revolting rebelling against authority you know it's wrong but you You trespass, you cross that boundary. Not once, but twice does David say this in the first few verses. He uses the words iniquity. That's a word that means in the Hebrew, wickedness, perversion, to be thoroughly depraved. That idea of original sin. And he even says, I was brought forth, verse 5, in iniquity. It's not that conception is sinful. God gave conception for his great design that the human race might be fruitful and multiply. It's that sin is transmitted through person to person. And we are born, we inherit iniquity. Sinful by nature and by choice. And then he uses that most common word for sin, which both in the Hebrew and the Greek means the same thing. It means to miss the mark. It's just the word sin. My sin is ever before me. David, the guilt of his sin, the awareness of his sin, he knew how far he had fallen, that he had missed the mark. He knew how deeply rooted his sin was. Second bullet point is that our sin is ultimately against God more than anyone else. It was God who gave Israel the Ten Commandments. And yet, as we look at those commandments in the book of Exodus, several of those commandments are more vertical focused toward God, and the last half of the Ten Commandments are horizontal focused toward other people. David broke four of the ten You shall not steal. He stole a man's wife. You shall not covet. 
And Moses says specifically, your neighbor's wife is exactly what he did. He coveted her and he stole her. And then he also committed adultery. And then he also was guilty of murder. But ultimately, though his sin was so severe against Bathsheba, against Uriah, against Joab, who was a cold, heartless guy. Read his story. But, but he put his commander in a... He created this, this whole ripple effect of sin. Yet ultimately, he knew that those people were made in God's image. The law was given by God and that it was God that he'd sinned against ultimately. Just like Joseph. Not the father of Jesus, but the Old Testament Joseph. When he's by himself in Potiphar's house. Potiphar was the captain of the Egyptian army. And he's in that house doing his job. And then Potiphar's wife comes to him and grabs his cloak and says, Lie with me, sleep with me. And what does Joseph say to her? How could I do such a great wicked thing and sin against God? He knew that that would be a sin against her. And a sin ultimately against God. For if God's the only one who could show mercy, who can pardon, who is justified to judge, then God is the one when we sin that we sin against the most. Third sub-point, our only hope for pardon is according to God's steadfast love and abundant mercy. Don't miss that in verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love. That's words of covenant. According to your abundant mercy. Oh, David here is not going to call down any kind of imprecatory psalm on himself. He's not going to appeal to a God of justice or a God of vengeance. He's going to appeal to a God of mercy and a God of grace. And that's who we appeal to. That's our only hope for pardon. David lays himself out before God. I believe that David wrote these words after that firstborn child became ill. And then David went by himself to the temple, fasted and prayed for days, refused to eat. I believe that's exactly when David wrote these words. And he's not asking God to heal his little sick boy. He is going to God knowing that the consequences of his sin are producing what happened in that child's life. He's going to God to restore unto him a right relationship. We learn so much from David's confession. We realize our need for God's mercy when we understand the gravity of our sinfulness. So which says that when we think we're okay and that others are worse off than we are, spiritually speaking, we're never going to realize our need for mercy. It's the sick that need a physician. Jesus came to seek and save the lost, not seek and save people who think they're okay. We must realize and admit and confess our sinfulness too. We need our sin washed, cleansed, blotted out. Even more than that, we need God to create in us a clean heart. We should long for our sin to be completely removed. David says that it would be washed away. Wash away like the picture of a garment, a stain being washed clean. 
cleanse, he said. Cleanse there in the Hebrew, it means to purge. Literally, it means to descend. That's right, D-E-sin. Remove the sin. Purge me from it. Blot out has the idea in the Hebrew of wiping something clean. It's taking something out of a book. Think about an eraser, erasing out. Blot out my sin, O oh God. We should long for our sin to be completely removed. God alone is able to create a clean heart within us. It's the same word used in verse 10, create bara. In the Hebrew, it's the same word used in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created. God spoke. God created. David says, God, there's nothing here. I need you to make this heart something brand new. Bible commentator Derek Kidner writes, with the word create, he asks for nothing less than a miracle. David asks for only what God can provide, and that's exactly what God is going to do, because later, the prophet Ezekiel will write these words in Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27. I want to invite now our deacons to take their place for the Lord's Supper. Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Now, now he's saying this to the children of Israel who are living in exile. Jerusalem has been destroyed. Ezekiel is prophesying, speaking this truth. He says, I'll cleanse you. Verse 26, moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. David is asking God for a new heart, for revival, for renewal. David needed a right spirit within him. He's asking for help on the inside. All of us can act certain ways on the outside to look like we are right with God. But David knew how heartbroken and how wrong he had sinned against his God was. He's asking for help on the inside and there'll be no salvation. Unless we go to God like this and say, God, I need you to put in me Jesus. I need the Holy Spirit of God. Jesus, I need you to cleanse me from my sin, God. I'm a sinner. I need salvation. For oh, what a picture. For he talks about hyssop in Psalm 51. What was hyssop used for? It was a real leafy kind of branchy plant that they would use in their culture in the mosaic law they take that hyssop they dip it into blood and they put that blood over the doorpost of the home their homes there in egypt and that's when god's death angel passed over it was by the blood they were cleansed. Also, they would use hyssop plant to dip in blood. They would use hyssop to cleanse leprosy. 
Leprosy in the Old Testament meant every kind of skin disorder and disease. And so we'll see that the blood, the blood is what will cleanse us of our sin disease. One last truth before we sing our final song. We see a response. I mentioned uh, that God might open our lips to praise Him, that we might bring Him worthy sacrifices from a broken, contrite heart. And thirdly, we have received such mercy that we should respond with joy and a willingness to do everything we can to bring others to God. We're going to watch a brief one-minute video by a great Southern Baptist pastor who's retired now working with the North American Mission Board Johnny Hunt. Watch this and I'll speak toward who's your one. Then we'll conclude our service. 7.6 billion. Now that's a big number. That's how many people there are on earth. In the U.S. alone, estimates say that out of 328 million, there are nearly 246 million lost souls, men, women, boys, and girls that don't know Jesus. Those numbers seem big, but what if we were to focus on the number one? The Bible tells us that heaven rejoices every time one person comes to know Jesus. What if we were to focus on the daily conversations, those everyday meaningful interactions for Christ that can truly make an eternal difference in someone's life? We can reach our nation with the gospel. We can reach the millions. We can reach our friends and family and neighbors by starting with one. Who's your one? So after his confession of sin, after he asked God to make within him a new heart, a right spirit, the joy of his salvation be restored, he said, then I will teach transgressors your way and sinners will be converted unto you. And David gives us a great response that we should want to share the message of God's forgiveness and grace with everyone around us. Here's the challenge for us as a church. It's not a program. We're not going to be um, calling this a program. This is a, a culture change that we as the people of God might continually have before us our one.